The first seven chapters of Leviticus contain seven speeches about sacrifices. A couple weeks ago, we talked about how all these details were given so that the people of God didn't have to guess what would please him. And friends, if you're listening to this, God is not playing a guessing game with you. He wants you to have a sure and steady anchor in your soul about the promises that he has for you and how you can obtain them. That's what the author of Hebrews tells us. This is who God is. And so there are all these details, and and in this uh, sermon, I want to dig into them a little bit more. Um, and to help you get kind of a lay of the land of the opening seven chapters of Leviticus. And I hope that we respond ultimately to the offering of Jesus by offering our own lives to him. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations and thoughts of each one of us listening to this be holy and pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. So when you open up the book of Leviticus, the first sacrifice that you read about it's often called a burnt offering or the ascension offering. It was this the sort of most costly offering, and it was totally voluntary. So no one had to do this offering. It's an offering that they would make because they were thankful or because they wanted to make some kind of vow or commit themselves in some way or, or some kind of self-dedication to God. But God just simply assumes people are going to want to do this. And so he says, when any one of you brings this kind of offering, here's what you do. That's what the ascension offering is. And the second kind of offering is, or sacrifice, is the grain offering. And as you might expect, it was an offering of grain. Specifically flour and oil and frankincense and salt. And wine was poured out upon it as it was being offered and Similar to the Ascension offering, this was entirely voluntary, and it was used to express thanksgiving. Uh, but this one, unlike the first offering, it was only a small portion of it was offered to God in the fire. The rest was given to the priest. The third kind of five was called a peace offering. And this one's really kind of maybe confusing because if you're reading through Leviticus, because it could take three different forms. The peace offering is sometimes called thanksgiving offering. Sometimes it's called a wave offering. Sometimes it's... Um, just called a free will offering. And, and you can imagine maybe someone who's just overcome with gratitude for what the Lord has done in their life. And they bring to him, or they come to the tabernacle with something to offer him. And they, they say to the priest, hey, I'm just so thankful for what God has done that I'm, I'm simply here to say, Lord, all of this is yours. Thanks be to God. And so you've got the ascension offering, the grain offering, and the peace offering. And these all kind of dovetail and overlap in interesting ways. And, and they're often done together and even alongside of the other sacrifices. But these first three sacrifices, again, are totally voluntary. The people of God are not commanded to give them. But the next two sacrifices are commanded. The offering for purification and the offering for reparation. And this first one may surprise you because it's an offering you make when you realize you've wronged someone but didn't mean to. So, so somebody, some people talk about it like it's, um, it's this unintentional sin kind of offering. I, there, are app, there are applications to it uh, that, that might entail sins you did actually intend to make, and there are other um, ways that, that we can get into sacrifices talking about uh, sins that you intended to make. Often when people are intending to sin, the expectation 
is that there's some kind of punishment um, or consequence for that. Uh, but, but what about when you sin or commit evil and you, you weren't meaning to do it? Um, you just realize later that you did. Well, there are instructions for what to do when this happens with a priest or a whole group of people, like when all the Israelites are sinning, when your tribe or culture has committed evils and later you realize, oh my God, what have we done? Or when individuals do it, um, there are instructions for this. That there, this, this sacrifice teaches that there's just something in the way in which our world works now. There's something in our history, in our trauma, in our habits, which is off. And so we find ourselves making mistakes or participating in evil, even when we don't set out to do it. And when the Israelites became aware of their past participation in these things, they were commanded to make this sacrifice. It was a kind of purification sacrifice because it implied not that we're even walking around and setting out to do evil, but that something is just off and needs to be set right in the world, right relationally and ceremonially. Interestingly, of all the sacrifices, this is the one that was supposed to be burned outside the tent. And maybe it comes as no surprise that Jesus, when he was strung up on the cross in that same place where these sacrifices were later performed, cried out upon the cross, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. They're sinning and they don't even know it. Jesus knows himself to be the one offered up there outside the tent as the fulfillment of this purification sacrifice. And the last kind of sacrifice is often called a guilt offering, but it might better be called something like a reparation offering because this sacrifice was commanded when you violate something dedicated to God or when you lie and make an oath bringing God's name into a situation and someone's treating wrong, uh, treated wrongly in light of that. And, and, and there's no variation in what you can bring in the sacrifice, but like you had to bring an unblemished male ram or sheep. But when it came to this sacrifice, you didn't just have to bring an offering. You had to seek forgiveness and make reparations with the people you've hurt first. And so these are the five sacrifices outlined in these first few chapters of Leviticus. Note the mandatory sacrifices are not just private things between like a person and God. They have these intersections with the world around them. And so the scriptures say something like, if you deceive your neighbor in a manner of money, or if you oppressed your neighbor, or you found something lost and you lied to them about it, like you not only owe this person some kind of restitution, but you owe God. These sacrificial laws teach us that when you sin against your neighbor, you sin against God. You see, there's this connection between the love of God and the love of neighbor, which is intricately woven together in the Levitical commands. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment is, he says, love God and love neighbor. I think of the prophet Malachi, where the priests are crying out and wondering why God won't accept their offerings. And he says, it's because of how you've treated your wives and it's because of how you've treated the poor. These things are connected. God cares about how we treat each other. And it is wild that we even need to be taught this, friends. 
the actions and even the thoughts we have about other human beings made in God's image. God says that how we treat them is connected to how we treat him. And so in Matthew chapter 5, on that great sermon on the mount, Jesus says, if you're coming and you're making an offer at the altar of God, and there you realize that someone has something against you, leave your gift. Go first and be reconciled with them and then come. And Jesus, in his humanity, he gets this teaching from Leviticus. I want to make a recommendation. Like right now, even as I'm talking, if there's somebody that you need to make peace with, text them right now. Call them right now. Stop listening to this. And just don't let any kind of time go past right now. Just shoot them a text and say something like, like, hey, can we talk soon? Or I'm sorry. Or I want to make peace with you. Or just text the word peace. And then after you're done listening to this or, or whenever you have the next moment available, like go over there, go to them, seek them out because God wants the connection between our love of him and our love for our neighbor. He, he wants these two things to have integration. If you're coming to a worship service or you're listening to a sermon, or going to the scriptures, or you're going to prayer, looking for peace with God, go there. And be at peace with others too. These things are connected. How, how cool would it be if the world knew Christians? Like think about the, con the contextual like context, like the culture that we live in right now. How cool would it be if, if people knew Christians as people who believe that in order to be at peace with their God, they're fighting for peace with me. Like they believe that their God wants them to love me. Those Christians are people who love their enemies. And they pray for the people who persecute them. Wouldn't that be wild? It's the very normal way of life, Jesus said, that operates in his kingdom. This should be the daily rhythms of the things the people of God live into and walk out. These sacrifices teach and train this kind of way of life into the people of God. And so, uh, one, I want you to recognize something in these sacrifices tonight. And two, I want you to know something about how God receives them. I want you to recognize something in the sacrifices, and I want you to know something about how God receives them. In the ancient Near East, sharing a meal with somebody was a sign of peace. And it still is in many places in the world. And I just want you to just imagine for a minute, if it helps close your eyes or look up, if you're out, especially if you're outside listening to this right now, like if you wanted to be at peace with God and your understanding of what peace means is to share a meal, like technically, how do you share a meal with God? Like looking up at the sky dome, you know, and thinking about God up there, like I can't get there without flying and I can't make God come down here. But I wonder if I can get a goat up there. That sounds ridiculous, right? But like maybe you can imagine like 3,000 or 4,000 years ago, it wasn't too far-fetched to think that it seems like when I burn this goat, it doesn't just die, it transforms. It transforms into smoke. And, and it's like this ancient teleporter, right? Moving this goat here up 
there? Like, what do I see when I burn this offering? Well, I see it transformed into smoke which ascends and it rises up into the sky where I believe God is. This is the first sacrifice, which was called an ascension sacrifice. It's called that because it looks like when you light something on fire, whatever you burn ascends. This might be a way that I can share a meal with God. If I burn this, it goes up to him. It's like a, a, a meal with him. But these sacrifices do more than that. They don't just symbolize a kind of meal with God and a kind of peace with him. In every other kind of sacrifice, there is a portion of it that does get offered to God in fire, but the rest of it gets shared with either a priest or with family and friends every single time. And so in other words, every single offering is in some way about a meal with God or with God and these people around me. It's about a meal, about being together. It's using your resources to make peace with God and others and be Together, there is this way in which sacrifices in the ancient Near East were just kind of a classic date night. And though the logistics of our sacrifices have changed because of the culture and the sacrifice of Jesus, it's still true that sacrifice is the means through which we experience intimacy with one another. Think about this. If I want you to know that I love you, I must give you something. Like my time or my space. Like an offering from the resources which I steward, a flower I pick, or a gift that I purchase. Even in our postmodern Western context, cost is still associated with love. And the greater the cost, the more love is implied. And so I'm pretty sure my wife, Anna, believes that I love her like on a normal day. Like I think she normally believes that. But when I take a second out of my day to think about her uniquely, like I, I t- just to text her, when I set aside time from what I usually like doing to be comfortable and to do something instead that I normally don't like, but I do it to be with her, what I communicate to her is that I love her. And then, and this is just the way the things in the economy of God's kingdom work. When I do that, it also becomes easier for me to meditate on and think about how much I do love her. That I'd be willing to give up all these other things for her. Sacrifice still and always is the way to intimacy. Hey, friend, if you don't currently experience much intimacy with other relatively healthy people, and that's an important nuance, if you're not experiencing intimacy with them, it's likely because one or both of you is unwilling to sacrifice. Sacrifice is the way we experience intimacy. If there's no sacrifice, it's just saying I love you without any actions attached. Another way of saying it is this, if there's no cost, there is no love. We see and we hear and we know this in Jesus' sacrifice, in God offering himself up for us. We see and, 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 uh, and hear his desire for intimacy with us, to be with us, as Kirsten preached on last week. And as the Apostle Paul in Romans 12 tells us, to offer our bodies up as living sacrifices, that's for the purpose of intimacy with each other and with God in order that we might be the people of God with the people of God in this world 
Sacrifice is the way to intimacy. I went to um, undergrad at the University of Washington in Seattle. And while I was there, I participated in this college ministry called the Inn. And they have this worship service on Tuesday nights, much like the house. And they also have this time of prayer before the worship service, much like the house. And when I was 18, I went to one of these prayer services. And we're all standing around in this circle. And I remember at one point looking up, and the guy who was the lead college pastor at the time, he was standing there with his eyes open and kind of looking up at the ceiling while we were all praying. And I remember being a little shocked. Like, why are his eyes open? I thought he's like the pastor, shouldn't he? Like have his eyes closed and pray, you know? And I remember being like really shocked and, and it seems kind of like irreverent. You know, I don't know if I would have known what that word meant, but that it felt something like that. And I wasn't sure at that time, even what I thought about prayer, like what it was, what it did, if God listened, all that kind of stuff. I, I didn't, but, but, but I remember thinking, I don't know if what he's doing counts because his eyes are open. And I started wondering about him, like the genuineness of his faith, or could God even hear him or something? And those things are ridiculous, right? Like, but there is something in that dynamic that matters. Like, they're ridiculous because how silly would it be if, if I really believed that God couldn't hear me when my eyes are open, but then I close my eyes and he's like, yo, what's up? You know, <laughs> and, um, and, and, and this, this guy's eyes being open didn't necessarily mean he was being irreverent, but it, it triggered that kind of thought. And anyway, these dynamics matter. Like it matters that, that this pastor is making a kind of offering and he's not being flippant about all this. And it also matters that God's not gimmicky. Here's an example. My wife's mother, um, she passed away last uh, weekend ago, like 10 days ago. And um, it's been really hard. Um, it's been a hard couple months for us. It's been a really hard week and a half, uh, in particular. And among the many different ways that people have reached out to us and cared for us and loved us, um, it is one of my friends sent me this text and asked what kind of flowers Anna likes because he and his wife were going to make a, a kind of free will offering to her. And he wants to know what pleases her. And so I was thinking, I was like, I can't tell him pink. Uh, definitely not carnations, probably stay away from roses, you know. And so I just texted, wildflowers are probably your safest bet. And when the flowers came as a surprise for my bride the next day, there were some gorgeous wildflowers. Um, but, there, but there's also some pink roses in them, which I know my wife doesn't really love. But I'll tell you what, she was so grateful because Joe and Ashley thought of her and sacrificed their thoughts and time and money and intentions to get her something they thought she would like. And so it didn't even matter that they were pink roses. And what's more, they don't even know this. If there's any time to like pink roses, it was this last week because my wife's mom loved them. And so my wife was able to take joy in just kind of connecting the dots to make this gift work. And it reminds me of how God is just always receiving our gifts and our sacrifices and our offerings, like all these details that God gives us about how we ought to live, how we're to relate to one another in Him. They are important because they shape us in our hearts and they tell us what pleases God. It's important to pay attention to these details, but some of us get really tricked up by details because we think if we get something wrong, God's not going to like it or accept it. Like if I open my eyes during prayer, he's not going to listen to me anymore. 
And if he doesn't accept our offerings, even when we get tripped up on those little details, our, our coming to worship services, our prayers, our confessions, our material offerings, what if his not accepting of those offerings means he doesn't really accept us? Friends, God is infinite and you are finite. He is God and you are not. And every single thing you do, he has to credit. He has to bridge the infinite distance between you and him with grace. In a sense, he is infinitely saying something like, that'll do. Or I can work with that. He doesn't need your prayers. He doesn't need your purity. He doesn't need your food. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need your time. He just wants you, and he likes you, and he delights in you. God is infinitely crediting our work as things which please him. So for those of us who get tripped up in details, because of Jesus and the way he shows us the heart of God, we can go boldly before God with our pink roses and our meager quiet times and our fickle prayers and our opened eyes and our humble offerings and he is eager to say, that'll do. And he's good and faithful to grow us into people who are willing to offer more and more because we trust him more and more and want to be with him more and more because he wants to be with us more than we've ever dared to dream. Sacrifice is the way to intimacy. And God is delighted to accept our sacrifices. He doesn't need our offerings. He's simply pleased to accept them. They're already his anyway, just as you and I are already his anyway. Therefore, we can operate in the confidence that God receives them with joy. And we can see that sacrifice is the way to intimacy, even for God. And the giving up of his own life for us to be with us. And our sacrifices, the ways in which he invites and commands his people to offer themselves to him and to one another, are the ways in which we get to know and participate in the intimacy he's offering us.